And remember that we are not descended from fearful men. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Five, four, three. The Kellen and Alex Show. Zero. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. The Kellen and Alex Show. John, welcome back, brother. I'm back again. You can't get rid of me. Cannot get rid of you. And part two, Francesco, welcome back to the podcast, Hey, thank you so much for having me back on your show. A two-timer. Um, <laughs> and all the best sense of the words, you know, yes. the best sense of yes. it. Yes, uh, <laughs> definitely. By popular demand. I mean, one of my favorite podcasts, if you guys haven't heard the first part of this one, you can go down. Uh, Francesco, It was. it's titled Star Wars, Lord of the Rings, and Batman. And uh, this podcast, we're going to wrap up Batman, but get to Spider-Man yes, as well. That one, that was a series I grew up with in my childhood. So I basically like been looking at it from like, like a child perspective and now looking at it from a more mature perspective, seeing all the themes coming in to play. It's really interesting. Like as many times as I've seen it, like I've seen it for every year that I've lived. So basically, well, it's a lot of pizza time. Yeah. A lot of pizza time. Exactly. A lot of pizza. A lot of pizza time. Uh, so, but like every time I see, it, I always pick up something new. It's really interesting hmm. how deep that goes, but dark night, man. I mean, talk about a movie that just keeps on going you watch it watch it over and over again just keep them picking on themes for sure and we were talking before the podcast about like batman coming out of like 1939 when it was first created mm-hmm. and then spider-man like in the 1960s yes and for me so when i was a kid with spider-man i didn't really watch much of i like i was too scared to watch him like legit there were some some parts that were like scary to me when i was like you know like eight or nine or that 10, green whatever. goblin power ranger outfit got to you it got to me yeah, man like i don't know some of the, especially, um, especially episode three. How old was I then? I don't that even know. That was 2007. So, okay. yeah. I st- <laughs> Look, I was a scared guy. I, I think you're, uh, you're exposing something. Yeah. But uh, like Star Wars seemed to be less, I wouldn't say less mature, but like the, the earlier yeah, episodes were more fun. And there's more detachment with Star Wars. It's yeah. much, I mean, not that Spider-Man's realistic, but Star Wars is literally in, it's much more fantastical and that Spider-Man's in New York and they try to make him a human character, which isn't necessarily not what they do in star Wars, but star Wars is in the stars on these planets. They're using laser swords, you know, all that. Right. And and Spider-Man is like, I mean, even from the very beginning, right? So you take Spider-Man one, he gets the power and then like very early in the movie, his uncle gets brutally murdered. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's the nature of the origin story. And also um, going to the, horror elements that's because sam raimi is a horror director oh, yeah. at heart yeah he was coming out of what was it evil dead series was his breakthrough yeah he was yeah. he was who's this again sam raimi he's the director of the spider-man trilogy sam raimi sam yep. raimi okay. yes so he um directed uh, as john said the evil dead series beforehand and that's how he got his start it was in horror so in each spider-man movie he always put in the horrific aspects which kind of works interestingly well with spider-man as a concept because as Spider-Man, like you, like the whole concept, like you got bitten by a radioactive spider, your whole body is changing. Like your body becomes foreign to you and you have this great power, great responsibility theme that comes with it. But also at the same time, you could do a lot of horror with Spider-Man's like type of villains since it's very primordial, like with the Green Goblin or Dr. Octopus, like basically these animals, these ferocious animals. Or and then that come with Venom, it's the evil doppelganger kind yeah. of. Yeah. Or at least the darkness that lies in all men or whatever. Exactly. So there's a lot of horror themes. It's like <clears throat> funny how Spider-Man can interestingly lead to a lot of horror themes just by the nature of his character, mm. I guess. Yeah. 
And people, and I think that's one of the things that Stan Lee, when he first invented the character, was trying to go for is that real that realism and that um, like youth and mm-hmm. different emotions and how like Peter Parker makes tons of mistakes throughout all the movies. Yes, um, and he, you know, you're you're he's not just a perfect hero with one particular. You know, it's uh, he's trying to pursue Mary Jane, but he also wants to protect her. Uh, he has Harry, who's kind of his friend, and then Harry really wants to be his friend, and then that kind of goes back and forth. Love triangle with Mary Jane. Well, you know, accidentally killing someone's dad puts a strain on your relationship. Just a little bit. <laughs> Just a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Well, okay, so, well, accidentally I can't remember. Killing, how, I okay, can't remember so, how it works in the first. So movie. remind me. So Norman, uh, yes, Green Goblin. Green Goblin. He tries to kill Spider-Man with his uh, like hoverboard thing. Right. And it's going towards Spider-Man. Spider-Man gets out of the way mm-hmm. and then it impales Green Goblin yes. and kills him. Yes, it does. Uh, so, so maybe we, for people who, let's just go back on Spider-Man, uh, go back to the story. He gets the power. Uncle Ben dies because of Spider-Man's negligence, basically. Yes. Uh, so Spider-Man, instead of using his power for good originally, he goes and tries to fight in a wrestling match and like destroys the opponents. And, um, and then and when he gets cheated out of his money... Uh, a thief comes and steals money out of the uh, the boxing match mm-hmm. arena, whatever. And instead of stopping him, Peter Parker just sits by, lets him go out. But then the robber goes out, kills Uncle Ben, and takes his car. Right, and later gets revealed to be Sandman. Right, in these movies, in these movies, in these yes. movies, in these okay. movies. For the uh, first movie, the whole theme contained was always oh, just a burglar. Peter got the burglar. The burglar, like he, he accidentally killed the, not accidentally, but. Through like circumstantial habit, basically Spider-Man tracked down the burglar to an abandoned building and he frightened the burglar and the burglar just stepped backwards, fell over and died. So it was almost mm-hmm. like a circumstantial death that okay. the burglar. So basically that's that arc within the story. Okay, Peter Parker sort of had his revenge right on him, but it wasn't like he directly killed anyone. So you have retained Peter Parker's innocence, hmm. but at the same time resolving that arc within that movie of, okay, the killer's dead. That's defeated, but now Peter Parker has to deal with his own personal agenda. I think that's what really, the same Raimi really delves into like the personal themes. So you know that, um, watch the Amazing Spider-Man movies. Those are the reboots, the first reboots. Oh, it came out a few years ago. Yeah. I heard that the second one was really bad and I didn't watch either of them. It, yeah, so. it was. The, Wait, the, was that the cartoon one? No, no, that was no, Andrew no. Garfield. Andrew, Andrew Garfield. Garfield. Andrew, oh, I remember that. In that one, so in that one, in the first Amazing Spider-Man, they had one plot thread where Peter Parker is trying to find Uncle Ben's killer, but they never resolved it in either of the movies. Mm. It never resolved, so it's more like a mystery thread that keeps you going, right? Instead of, like the same Raimi movies, he resolved it immediately. So you have that emotional weight of it hanging throughout the movie instead of the mystery, okay, how am I supposed to find a killer that doesn't get resolved? I think that's where a lot of people praise the same Raimi movies and don't really kind of deride the Amazing Spider-Man movies because they always leave hanging plot and threads. I think I heard yeah. the Amazing Spider-Man movies also were just, they were trying to set up a Spider-Man uni- yes. movie universe. Yeah. They kept like throwing references to other things from the Spider-Man mm-hmm. stories. And you know, it was that thing where people are trying to be Marvel, so they're spending so much time setting things up that they don't tell a satisfying story. Right. I, I haven't seen them, so is that like accurate? That's exactly what happened. Um, there's so ma- there were so many good parts that had potential. Mm-hmm. Um, the acting was great. I like Andrew, Andrew Garfield Gar- as an he's, actor. He's a really great actor. Even in the Spider-Man movies, like the dynamic between him and Gwen Stacy was definitely a high point 
in the movie, but in the same Raimi trilogy, you had each story was contained. And some of the themes bled into the other movies, but it wasn't as if though you had a large hanging plot thread that had to be resolved in a future movie. Mm. It was all right there. And the original, like the trilogy, mm-hmm. it does like start and end plot lines. Very, I mean, you have, uh, yeah, that killer, Uncle Ben are done. And then you have Norman, the Green Goblin, Green Goblin yep. done. He dies. Yes. Right. And then you move on to Harry. Mm-hmm. And the second one gets into Doc Ock. Uh, Doc, Dr. Oc- Octopus. Yes. That's what they call Dr. Yeah. yeah. Who gets the um, uh, artificial intelligence arms thing yes. that end up kind of infecting him. And there's, you know, uh, maybe one theme we could. Uh, I, let me finish that thought before we get back to that theme. But um, and then that's Spider-Man 2. You have that arc. And then he dies of the nuclear mm-hmm. reactor at the end. Right. Doesn't he sacrifice himself? He does sacrifice himself. OK. At the end, yes. And that ends. Right. Mary Jane's obviously going throughout all of it and then um and and she has like after the you know that's the love interest for peter parker after the first uh movie she confesses her feelings Mm -hmm. for peter parker and he because he thinks she's going to be you know used as um leverage against spider-man right he wants to distance himself from her yeah but then she becomes really close with harry his best friend (laughs) which does not work to his no he's not very happy about that um, and then he gets close with Gwen. Uh, that's in the third. That's, movie. In, the that's third in the third movie. movie. Okay, the third, the which one is kind of with, yeah. That's right. like a reversal because isn't Gwen the first girlfriend in the comics? Yes, yes, she is. So they don't do the unfortunate Gwen Stacy ending. No, they no. don't. No, they don't. Uh, not in the original scene. I think that was a plan at one point to do oh, yeah. that, but they didn't make that movie even darker. <laughs> yeah, and then third, you have Harry becoming the. Well, no, no, no. Sorry, before that. The third, you have Spider-Man gets infected with the the symbiote. Uh, symbi- symbiote. Where does symbiote? that symbiote? Symbiote. Where yeah, did it come from? Did it come from space. Oscorp? Space. Or? Basically, space. in it's the movie, sp- it came from space. Yeah, the symbiotes are space aliens. That's convenient. <laughs> Anyways, or actually, I think the- that all the symbiotes come from Venom in the comics, but he's a space alien. Yeah, yeah space alien, basically. Yeah. Venom's a space alien? So yeah. it, in the movie, they don't really describe it. Literally, they stuff that movie with so many plot threads. Three villains. Three villains. So they said, you know what? We literally have no Sandman. time. Sandman, Green Goblin Jr., a.k.a. Yeah, Harry, Harry Osborn, and Venom. So they literally said, okay, Venom. People know him from the comics. We don't need to explain it that much. All we need to show is an asteroid coming in from outer space with this black goo in it. That's literally how they introduced the symbiote. I mean, fair enough. Yeah. <laughs> it does introduce it. Yeah, I remember um, that's one of the, out of all the scenes of Spider-Man, like that, that Sandman one where he's leaving oh. as a criminal oh, you know he's it, it, he like gets out of prison right and he's running and they're doing a um it's not a nuclear test they're doing like a particle a particle accelerator test pa- same, particle yeah. accelerator test he gets in the middle of it yeah and uh gets transformed into sandman which mm-hmm. has manipulation on it um yeah so those are all our villains that's kind of the general plot line harry and harry jr dies too right yes he does and then spoilers um, uh, yeah well we're giving the whole yeah, yeah i'm saying that after we already gave the spoiler yeah, i, I said spoiler so that's so useless but that's kind of the general <laughs> plot uh, how does it end up with mary jane so that's i actually read an essay about this why they were saying like even if spider-man 4 did happen it would have been very hard to pull off because it ended with peter parker of course when he Okay, uh, this goes in, this goes deeply. Okay, getting closer to the mic here, making sure we get good <laughs> audio on. levels. Thank you, Alex. Um, so, this to tie it with Mary Jane, I think we need to go back into the themes of all three movies. Hmm. And I think because that's we, so that's one question we have. Like, how does it end with Mary Jane? 
It ends very complicated. That's very the only reason I watched Spider Man is for the romance. No, the romance. <laughs> and for free and for pizza time. <laughs> I think in each one though, there's a very distinct theme. I think you can relate it to almost like a Catholic theme to a different vocation in each movie, which is really interesting. Interesting. So the first one, there's a heavy, heavy, I think you can take it in this way, priestly theme. The first one. The first one. Okay. So here's how it works. So basically, Peter Parker has these powers. Of course, like in, in the priesthood, right, you discern God's will. You basically, you discern it and you fully realize, okay, I'm going to this vocation and you receive powers. For Peter Parker, it's an accident. But that's where the differences kind of end. Mm-hmm. Once Peter Parker has these powers, right, um, he's not necessarily prevented from marrying, right, ontologically speaking. Like a priest isn't ontologically speaking. I mean, I could argue with Cardinal Ratzinger, Robert John Ball, yeah. Benedict XVI, and uh, Cardinal Sarah. Cardinal Sarah, yeah. Yeah, but I don't think, I think it's correct to say ontologically speaking, you're not prevented from marrying. Of course, like you're, you have married priests, so obviously, you know, you're allowed to. So Peter Parker, in getting his powers, he isn't prevented physically or like spiritually from marrying, right? But if he has to carry out his vocation, right, as the hero, he has these powers, this newfound powers. He has the responsibility for to the people, just like a priest has a yeah. responsibility to the people. He has these powers, so he really can't pursue Mary Jane because mm. pursuing Mary Jane and ending in a relationship with her would ultimately detract and put in danger his vocation as Spider-Man. I, I like that wow. vocational theme because yeah. because of how he is now and the powers he has, there's a way he ought to act. And if you think back to when Stan Lee was making Spider-Man, the whole idea is that he's a teenage kid who has to balance, like some teenagers have to balance life and work and stuff. Mm-hmm. Peter Parker has to balance life, work, romance, and his calling, yeah. as you put it, as Spider-Man. Mm-hmm. So that's interesting. And grief with yeah. his uncle. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. Yes. And I think the most interesting part of the first Spider-Man this really hit me. Like as a kid, it didn't mean anything to me. It was just the fight scenes, you know, with Green Goblin and Doc Ock and Venom. But growing older and like, you know, going through high school and going through college, what really hit me is that ending scene in the first Spider-Man where Peter Parker has been pursuing Mary Jane this whole time. Mm-hmm. And he literally gets her, right? Like she is actually, she's the one who initiates the kiss with him, I think, at the end of the movie. But he says no. So in all, like the entire movie was building up to them actually having the romance but then he gives it up to become hmm. spider-man hmm. and that I th- and that's what really like ends the movie on a great impactful note but also i think so we cool. can get to this affects the other movies in a way that kind of hinders the relationship in the future which is we can get into a little bit more um if you want meaning to. it was like a definitive moment when he said no there wasn't like a turning back, like maybe later. Right. There, at this moment. Unless he him. stops being Spider-Man. Right. Mm. Which in that way. Two <laughs> gets into and, like like Batman and um Rachel. And Rachel, Rachel Dawes. And yes. she ends up projecting him because he can't leave Batman behind. Right. Mm-hmm. And Peter Parker says, I can't leave Spider-Man behind and I have to I, I can't play this both. So right. uh Okay, so you said Priestly for the first one. Is there other vocation for two and three that you're talking about? I'm trying about? to think now because I'm thinking the other two is more of a vocation to marriage, I would say. And it's interesting how the perspectives shift, I think, in number two and number three. And I'm trying to – because I know it's like a marriage vocation. I know number three definitively, like 
but we have to cover number two first. But number three definitively is the man's role of sacrificing his own self-interests in order to promote the good of his wife. Hmm. That is, I think that's number three. If you can connect Because Spider-Man's it. literally uh, testosterone high steroid man in uh, yes. <laughs> three. Number three. It's like beating people up at the bar and yeah. like all sorts of stuff. Yes. It's literally like. You'll have your rent when you fix this damn this door. Is, this is toxic masculinity. <laughs> so I think that's where three's message comes. It's very poignantly like there with the symbol of the ring that Aunt May gives Peter Parker. But that's. That'll be when we discuss number three. Number two, I think, is the most interesting psychologically. And even I haven't gotten, like, even after watching the movie this so many times or so many years, I could kind of, we could kind of extrapolate it together, what the psychological themes are. But it's so deep that I'm wondering, because it's like such a deep movie, I'm wondering, like, there's something I'm missing or, like, it's actually a plot hole. And this is what I mean. So in the first movie, Peter Parker definitively says no to Mary Jane. Hmm. In the second movie, all of a sudden, he starts having these feelings again. It's almost like he forgot the ending of the first movie. And he decided, you know what? I want to move on with Mary Jane. And he can't have, like, basically, as he goes on his role as Spider-Man, right? And he goes on to his role as like, crime fighting. He's realizing all of his other parts of life are decreasing. Like, all of a sudden, okay, shoot. You know, this, like, my academics are bad. My romance, like, I don't have a shot with Mary Jane. I'm having trouble paying the rent. Aunt May is having trouble. Her house is going to be foreclosed and he can't do anything really to help her out because he's too busy as Spider-Man. Mm-hmm. So he gives up, basically the way he gives up the Spider-Man power is not like some sort of serum that he takes or physical uh, you know, medication or whatever to get rid of his powers or like some sort of ray or something. No, he actually is very connected to his psychology just because he didn't want it. Just because it was causing him so much stress, that's why he lost the power. Wow. And it's a very ethereal theme for such a mainstream blockbuster movie, which I find really interesting that his powers, your, his powers are tied to his psychology, uh, which is really interesting and very, it's not very tangible. Like the first and third one's very tangible. Hmm. Okay, you have the black suit in the third one that causes his evil side to come out. In the first one, you have his powers and his powers cause him to give up. But in the second one, it all hinges on his psychology. It's interesting. Yeah. Don't they make the powers organic in those movies too? Yes. They like do. instead of web shooters, it comes out of his wrist. It does. Yeah. It mm. does. Yeah. Yeah. And there's a, and I wanted to bring up this theme of like science and the role of science mm. in the Spider-Man movies. Cause oh. it's, it's super, I mean, especially with Spider-Man Oscorp, too. Yeah. Oscorp is a tech <clears throat> science biotech company. Uh, obviously number two with the AI and especially with, uh, Doc Ock. I think we were a, being a scientist. And we were talking earlier. Correct me if I'm wrong, but isn't his flaw that even though the demonstration is malfunctioning, he still pushes it because yes. he wants because he wants to prove that it works. Yes, Doc yeah. Ock so, proves like his whole life's work going. He couldn't have made a miscalculation. He pushes it, and that's how Doc Ock's wife dies, mm-hmm. and his whole thing goes to heck. You know? yeah. There's a big theme of like, what is the purpose of your your science and your research? Mm-hmm. Like, there has to be some purpose. I always bring up the example of uh, I don't know if you've heard of uh, Ebola pox. Ooh, yeah, if either of you uh, have I told you about this? Uh, sounds familiar. Okay, no, so yeah, what is Russian scientists in 2008 developed a cross between Ebola and smallpox. Hmm. It basically makes the deadliness of Ebola, but in the aerosol form of smallpox. So, <laughs> Russian scientists. The question thank you so much. is the why? Question is why? Why would you ever develop that? And I think that's just a very clear example of like, and I think Doc Ock is the same the same thing. 
you can't just fall back as a scientist and say, well, I'm just doing this for just objective purposes. Like your your research and your knowledge does have a definite end. Well, I think with aim. his, he was trying to make a powerful energy source, yes, correct? Yes, he was. Because like, there's the line, the power of the sun in the palm of your hand yeah, or whatever. Yeah. But his is the end justified his means. He pushed imprudently and it led to disaster. Right. And he ends up getting consumed by what he was making, right? His yeah. AI machine ends up taking over his yeah, his physical his AR yeah, arms yeah which is weirdly ahead. similar to venom in spider-man 3 mm, it's this yeah. like evil influence that lives within the character right mm. it really is there's such a like um <laughs> i'm gonna use an incarnational element or a bodily element to uh all these like you were talking organic right so spider-man mm. gets bitten and it changes his body physically yeah Right, it's not some external power that like he shoots fireballs out or something like that. It's like it's something internal to him, right? Mm-hmm. With Green Goblin too, he the it's the gas that like changes yeah, the- who he is and it makes him crazy and all this stuff. Um, obviously, the very clear one with the the um, uh, Venom or the the Spider Man when he gets infected yeah, by yeah, the, the symbiote, thing, yeah, right? It it in, he internalizes it and then it gives bodily expressions. He's stronger. Mm. He, and he's more. Uh, but he's also more aggressive. Super aggressive, <clears throat> super strong. Um, and it's only when he realizes that no, whatever it is that's like become in his body is completely changing who he is. Yeah, it's um, it's not. A, it's a very integrated vision of ideas, body, mm-hmm. mind, soul. It's it's very human in that way. That it's not external completely. It's like right. internalized yeah. evil. Or it's hylomorphic. You're saying hylomorphic. hylomorphic. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. Word. Uh, yeah, and. and yeah, and then tying that with the science element, it's I, I think it's I think it's fantastic. I, I love how they keep that theme and it keeps it very grounded and real. It does, yes. Um, especially when it gets so fantastical as compared to the Dark Knight trilogy, where it's like very grounded and just gritty. I think it's oh, Christopher Nolan. Mm-hmm. His filmmaking, I forgot if this is accurate or not, hyper realism. People have I think, described yeah, his I mean, they're literally they're not it's not the way the world actually works in the right. Batman movies, but people have pointed out that he took a very more, a, a much more realistic approach to Batman than some other yeah, versions like, of the character in the world. I think it was hyper realism is called, like you said, it's not real, like as in here, this is how the real world actually, real world actually works, but you extract certain principles in the real world, like cause and effect. Yeah. It's what like, happened if you had, it's yeah. like the difference between hard sci-fi and soft sci-fi. Yes. Where sure the situation isn't how the world is, but things sort of make logical sense to people who live in the world that we live in. Right. Yeah. I think Spider-Man is hyper hyper realism where it's okay this would never happen in real life where a guy would get super spider powers and live in that world whereas with dark knight you could actually i think theoretically you could have a batman character but at the same time there's these themes there's this anarchy that's like dialed up to a thousand like you see in the real world with terrorist organizations no joker terrorist organizations. actually because we rewatched the dark knight was it just like a week ago or so and for the first time, because I've watched that movie, I don't know how many times in my life. It's one of my favorite movies of all time. But for the first time, the post 9-11 war on terror themes really jumped mm-hmm. out to me. So it's interesting that you yeah, made that terrorist connection. It is. Like, it's it's that theme. Like, you literally put a, a clown as yeah. the front of it. That's I think that's basically the epitome of Nolan's hyperrealism. You take terrorists, right? You take this real threat and you apply its real principles, but you put it on the face of a clown. Right, who is mad and insane in all the like most hyper real ways, 
That's Nolan's hyperrealism. Mm. I almost said, isn't it crazy that we call everything crazy that's bad? But <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's that same thing that the Joker can't be reason, reasoned with. He's crazy. Well, it's insane. interesting. Terrorism and craziness, we always are. They like, are different. Insane, right. Because there's a because the terrorist theme is more evident in the first and third Nolan Batman movies. Yeah. Because the League of Shadows is a terrorist organization with a terrorist ideology. And their external, their leader, Ra's al Ghul, in the first one has a Middle Eastern last name, as one of my favorite critics points out. So it's much easier to see it as an analog for Islamic terrorists. Middle Eastern leader, they're from the East. They want to come into the West and destroy us because we're evil, just like jihadists. With the Joker, it's interesting because he's a nihilist. It's a totally different philosophy. He can't be reasoned with because he doesn't want what everyone else would want. He wants to prove that society is pointless and mankind is basically just an animal. Mm. And that's why it's so unpredictable because right? you yeah. can't just be like unlike the mob who is just the ultimate predictable yes. uh, entity in, in Dark Knight and, and that's why the Joker gets to play him so he much pl- yeah because he knows it's not just the mob the Joker knows the rules so he knows how the cops are going to act and he knows how the mob's going to act and he turns it all on its head to try to make his point mm. and I think that's a big theme in the Dark Knight I think Bishop Barron fa- saw this theme too is how to deal with evil and that's where a lot of the war on terror themes come, because if you look at what Batman does, he's a lot like the U.S. after 9-11 with the Patriot Act. How does he find the Joker? He goes to ultimate surveillance. He weaponizes every cell phone to get a view. On, and it's crazy, because I looked it up. The Dark Knight came out, I think, in 08, and yes. Edward Snowden came out with his- 2011, whistle. Right? It was in the early 2010s. Ooh. So before the Snowden whistle, I mean, obviously we knew about the Patriot Act and stuff, but- Almost a little bit like a precursor, it shows that the surveillance state is an answer to the war on terror. Just those post 9-11 themes in the Dark Knight. How do we deal with this evil? So for, for you guys who may be yeah. missing this, in the Dark Knight, uh, he Batman has to find the Joker and uh, ends up getting software that basically allows him to, to tap into everyone's phone, computer, any video camera, anything in the city. Mm-hmm. And uh, sends a signal from him. Sends a signal. Yeah, sends a signal. And so he can find the Joker, right? Uh, And then this is, I mean, definitely like the Patriot Act. NSA can tap into anybody's phone, surveillance, whatever. And they were using that for that good ends or whatever. Um, And notice uh, Lucius Fox says, this is wrong. If this continues, I will resign from Wayne. Is it corporation or enterprise? Enterprises. Enterprises. And then ultimately Batman puts a kill switch in it. So he's like, I'm only violating, I'm only doing evil means for a good end. This one time we'll destroy it afterwards. But but still, still Lucius still. has that moral indignation at the fact that he's violating all these people's privacy for a good end. Hmm. That's a really, like, the Dark Knight is not ashamed to bring those moral conundrums to the forefront. Yeah. And you really have to wrangle with that idea. Because otherwise he wouldn't have found Joker. The bombs probably would have been, that's an interesting thought though. Like, the, okay, the ending scene. Or like the climax, where it's the two fairies. The, oh, that's such a good sequence. Let's let's examine that for a bit. If you guys want, or unless you want to talk about uh, what we talked about earlier, the um, ending scene. Sorry, which in is Dark Knight, which is the climax, the two fairies, the two fairies with the bombs where, on them. Oh, the fairies! Bomb. Yeah, the yeah, two yeah. fairies. F e r r. Yeah, boats. <laughs> Wait a second. Uh, yeah. So yeah. So there's two fairies that are uh, trying to leave Gotham because uh, Joker has cut off all the exits to the city, and has he? Has he? Um, I think he. Oh, shoot. He, he basically was... said everyone has to stay there, but I, I forget if there was a reason because That's, of that. That was Bane in The Dark Knight Rises. He literally cuts I, off the bridges and rises. 
in Joker, um, he also cuts off the city um, until so. he finds that Batman. That's the reason why they're getting on the ferries. Yeah. They think this will be our way to get out. Right. Yeah. But the Joker has already planted bombs on both of them. And there's each of them have a switch mm-hmm. and one's filled with prisoners who are leaving and the other's filled with civilians. And they ha- they both have the switch to kill the other one. And then the Joker announces, well, you have, you know, two hours or something like that. And, it, uh, you know, if you flip the switch, I won't blow up your boat. Mm. Right. Yeah. So make your pick. Yeah, but like- if you don't pick by midnight, I blow you both up. Yes. <laughs> right now. OK. When I first watched Dark Knight. And it got to midnight and neither of them had blown each other up. Uh, I sat, I think, I, I don't even know if I remembered anything else from the movie at that point. Because I was just thinking, such a- would that be realistic oh, or yeah. not? Mm. <laughs> like, I was just yeah. running through different scenarios in my mind. I thought the way that they did it is is good, right? Um, the, the prisoner um, has that moral character not to. I mean, I have so much... Anyways, I have so much criticism of prisons, the, even the idea of prisons in general. I mean, we have a whole system set up based on it, but like modern prison systems are uh, really weird. It, maybe we should do an entire podcast on it. Actually, the utilitarians of the 1800s were the first ones to even have the idea of mass incarceration. Oh, really? Because right. we have millions of people right now who are in prisons, right? Uh, and so, and, and they do nothing to actually reform criminals. I mean, and they make them worse. I mean, it's just statistically, they make them worse. Mm. But they have the criminal... Uh, the prisoner be the moral high ground. He says, "Give me the switch." And he removes the I temptation. No, he doesn't say. Yeah. He says, "Give it to me. I'll do what you should have done." Well, however exactly. long ago, yeah, he ha- I'll, look it. I'll, I'll tell him I took it by. You can tell him I took it by force. Give it to me, and it's ambiguous. And in fact, I think even you, it's playing the audience to make you think he's going to do it. Mm-hmm. But immediately he throws it out the window. He removes the temptation of doing it immediately. It's such a good scene, right? So the criminal throws it out the window. I'm not going to do it. Um, and then the civilians have a vote. I mean, how democratic of them. <laughs> Americans. <laughs> Americans. And uh, the one middle-aged guy. And it's interesting. It's not like a young guy. It's a it's a guy who's kind of a little bit later in his life. Mm-hmm. It's not a woman. It's not a child. It's a guy kind of later in his life who says, I'm going to do it. All you other Look, civilians. Those people had their hand. chance. There's no reason we have to die. Give yeah. it to me. I'll do it. Those people had their chance. I mean, it's like that. that's our kind of like. That's our prison system too. It's like those people had their chance mm. to live in society and now they don't deserve to exist in it. And it's, once again, it, I, I think it goes back to that, our whole conception of society of this idea that, you know, if they have to be locked up forever if they're evil or whatever. There's, I don't know, that's a whole different yeah, that's a whole idea. But um, this idea of just guilt that requires, um, in, you know, the rest of your life in jail or this guilt that requires uh, killing them or whatever. That gets extrapolated into this, that claim. I of- just had an interesting thought, though, because the Joker's whole gambit is that social rules are ultimately made up. He doesn't go so deep as to say why we made them up or anything. But basically, his thing is, look, when the chips are down, he says that these civilized people will eat themselves. Ultimately, man's a selfish animal. I think it's interesting that this guy rationalizes all these reasons why we should kill the criminals. And ultimately, it seems like a natural impulse. Mm. He can't turn the key himself. He puts it back in the box, sits down, and then it's midnight. Hmm. So it seems that the it's way kind of like a Raskolnikov, yeah. you yeah. know, he's like, well, except for Raskolnikov actually kills. Um, well, you've read Crime Punishment, right? I Maybe know parts it, of it. Kind of. Uh, yeah, Raskolnikov ends up killing uh, the old lady who is the pawnbroker, and he finally gets him, himself to do it. But it's it's like a an enormous task for him to to do it, and his whole conscience and his moral being is just 
utterly disgusted with themselves for the rest of, the rest of that. There's like this natural uh, conscience is if like you're gonna, killing don't you. Bring it to Catholic thought. I think it's I believe it's St. Paul, the law is written on your hearts. Mm, yeah. That it's not just we made up all the rules to function in society and ultimately it doesn't matter. It's like Raskolnikov and the man on the boat both had it written on their hearts that they knew killing was wrong. Yeah. And with Raskolnikov, it drives him mad, doesn't it, that he did kill. And with the man on the boat, it's that he can't kill because ultimately something deep down prevents him from actually turning the key. That's a really good point. Never really thought of it that way. Is that the theme, this is like I said, this is one of the movies. Well, it's nihilism over over versus again. not nihilism. Exactly. In it. Yeah. That ultimately, like you said, Joker is saying that the natural form of man will ultimately eat itself. But it's really his natural, most inner part that prevents him from eating each other. It's which really disproves Joker. Yes. Which is why he gets so frustrated. <clears throat> and afterwards. then he says, ah, you can't count on anyone to do anything. Got to do it yourself. Yeah. And he pulls it, the, his own mm. near Batman beats him up. And then there's an interesting two sides of the coin Ah. pun intended because ultimately what the dark knight seems to say is that man is not inherently this selfish animal but yet individual men even the best of us can fall because harvey dent joker says you think i really let hedged or something along lines you think i really bet gotham's or the war for gotham's soul on just this i have an ace up my sleeve and it's to destroy the icon of harvey dent who's supposedly the best of us because he also corrupts Harvey Dent to turn him into, you know, break him down, you know? So it's interesting that man ultimately isn't evil, but individual men, even the best of us can fall. Yeah. He goes from like Christ to Antichrist. You know, yeah. he goes from literal savior of Gotham to if it gets out that he's systematically murdering, you know, Anyone people associated who, yeah. with Rachel. Yeah. It's, <laughs> it, he goes from the Christ to Antichrist. And it's like, if that got out, right. And then obviously the police commissioner says like this has to die and someone has to take the blame and he says blame Batman. Which again, I think it's interesting that you brought the priestly aspect of Spider-Man up in the first movie and then I think was it you also brought up Batman with Rachel. There's also uh, not totally moral but there is a priestly nature to Batman in that movie in that he takes Harvey's sins on him for the greater good. Mm. I mean, obviously it's not the same as Christ because it's immoral where Christ was within justice. Yeah. But Batman's kind of becomes like this priestly figure for Gotham. He does. You're right. Like he is literally the sacrificial lamb. Yes. That Harvey Dent, you know, he took upon us the scapegoat. I think it'd be more of a... Uh, Like a Girardian scapegoat. Yeah. (laughs) I think that's very... I don't know if it's... It's Catholic as in he takes it upon himself. It's also a very Jewish concept, I think, right there. Like mm. he is a scapegoat that the sins aren't put on him literally. He, you know what I'm yeah. It's put it on him, you know. I don't know, like yeah, not like he's he's actually this priest who takes away the sin of Harvey Dent and puts it away. It's like it's he's symbolically taking on the sins of Harvey Dent and doing it. Whereas Spider Man, he literally has to give up everything mm. in order to do. It. I think Batman has to literally give up everything. But actually. He, yeah. Interesting, if we're going to talk about the Christ typology of Batman in the Nolan movies, notice how he ends his career as Batman in The Dark Knight Rises. Yeah. He lit, He takes the bomb, that he takes death for Gotham, the bomb. Mm-hmm. He takes it himself, flies it out where it won't hurt Gotham, and we assume he dies in the explosion until the very end, you know? Ah. So the Batman literally ends when he ass- takes the death that will befall Gotham mm-hmm. and that on himself and 
so it won't affect Gotham. And then there's even, interestingly, I hadn't thought of this before, but after his Christ-like assuming of death, the very end, there's a resurrection. Yes, there is. Because people, right. you know, that's a controversial scene where Alfred sees him and Catwoman yeah. in wherever in Europe it is on that table. But there's a death and resurrection there, there which is. types him as a Christ figure even more. Exactly. I think that's interesting where he says that uh, final scene caused a lot of controversy. Because people are saying, is that literal or is that Alfred just seeing his this fulfillment? Yeah. And Nolan, in each one of his interpretations, it's funny, it goes with Inception as well, um, that he takes it very literally. Hmm. And that's really interesting. I think um, going on a little side tangent, but this is only to support Dark Knight. In Inception, I think Nolan said what the message of the movie was is that reality matters. And you need to get over he he needed to get over this psychological problem he had where he was fixated on his wife's death too. Exactly, an exception, right? So he and has, live in the real world. He's living in the real world. He could have stayed in dream world with his wife, but it wouldn't be real. Mm-hmm. Oh. So that one of the most powerful scenes, you know, like when they're in the hotel room mm. together. And I literally just got chills just saying. <laughs> I know. I, I'm seriously. I got chills too. I, I'm just thinking about that scene where he. Oh my gosh, Leonardo DiCaprio. It's just in too many good movies. Like, and it's just such a compelling actor, whether he's doing Wolf of Wall Street, whether he's doing Blood Diamonds, whether he's doing uh, Inception, whatever. Yeah. He's just, ah, man. Anyways, and then, yeah. So um, the actress really, you know, uh, is is fantastic in that too. But yeah, go ahead. Lay the scene, please. Exactly. So at the end of it, right, you have the spinning top, the infamous spinning top scene where you don't know if it falls or not. And Nolan said that's because you as the audience are invested in whether or not that is real. If it's not real, all of a sudden that takes away the value of him seeing his family again. Whereas if it is like, if it isn't real, you know, it takes away value, but where if it is real, it's a fulfillment and that goes against the nihilism that goes against the moral relativism also, of this age, where it's like, it, it, as long as you're happy with it, it's fine. Nolan's message is no, it actually has to happen in order for it to matter. There's also a sort of interesting meta commentary then, and we're literally watching a fantasy on the screen. Mm. I think other critics have pointed out Inception is kind of a con- has movie themes in it ah, because yeah. movies are kind of like, and it's like a dream world. It's a fake world that is made up by the human mind. Mm-hmm. So in not showing whether the top falls or not, I know it's just like an interesting meta commentary. It's like, is this a dream? Well, it's a movie. Yeah. You know? huh, that's a really interesting point. <laughs> and that goes straight back to reality matters to rises. Yeah. yeah. Reality matters. <clears throat> and a meta commentary, right? Is this real? Is it not real? And Nolan's saying, well, if it isn't real, it doesn't matter, right? But it, it this is literal. Like he is figured, and everyone, I still have yet to see Tenet. Like I'm looking forward to I haven't seeing seen it, it yet either. I want to see how he takes, I wonder if that theme is still taking on, like reality matters. That seems to be a common theme, at least. Can we go back to that one scene with uh, DiCaprio, oh, <laughs> DiCaprio, whoever the, what's his name in the uh, movie? Cobb. Cobb, Cobb, yeah. <clears throat> and his wife. And does he spin the top or he, she wants to, it's, it's a flashback to when, did she commit suicide? She did commit suicide because she thought, so in the movie, she thought she was, they were stuck in the dream world for such a long time. Right. So they were exploring it with that technology. And they got trapped there for like years or something. For years, like 50 years. Because they went too deep, right? They went into like the fourth Something like, or something like that. Yeah. And where, where, okay. So the time, so for, let's go back with Inception. Time multiplies the further you go down mm-hmm. in terms of how long. So a minute passes in the real world, but like an hour passes in the first, the first. dream. But if you take another dream, it, it like multiplies by a, some type of character. So I think it's yeah. like a day is actually 60 minutes. Right. And then further down. But if you go far enough, then it's like 
you could have entire centuries go by and only like a, you know, a day or an hour went by and 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 dreams up. Right. So him and his wife were playing this escapism because didn't one of their children die or something like that? I don't know. No, I I don't think so. They were, they were in there. I think they got stuck. I forgot how they got stuck. They're stuck. They decided to make a living out of that world, but then they realized this is fake. We can't keep doing this. So they decided to put their heads on the train, right? You know, like there's a train coming and decided to commit quote unquote suicide. To know, try and get to, them back a level to get them back up. Up. To wake they them did. up. They did. That's what woke them up. Right. But then with his wife, with Cobbs, Cobb was able to get reality back on his shoulders. Okay. Like this is real reality. He's able to rationalize it. He was able to deal with it. His wife was not. His wife was thinking there's something wrong about this. This is a dream. She kept Could, thinking she, she kept was thinking, still in a she dream. She couldn't yes. tell fantasy from reality. Man. Oh, geez. So like, this is a point where humanity has got, we're, we're doing hypothetically, that humanity has gotten to a point where the, the escapism reality becomes the preeminent reality. And it's or it hard to- Or did for them to, at least. For them it did, yeah. Becomes the preeminent reality that you can't tell reality from your escapist dreams. Yes. And- then you completely lose who you are exactly. because you're no longer grounded in reality. You're right. grounded in I, nothing. Ultimately. I think there is an added layer to it though. That's one aspect of it is that you go into, I think it's because early, like one of the first scenes in the movie, there's this guy, you know, the show in deep dark space and there's these people, right. Who are poor people and they're being put in this dream state and said, this is where they really live. So that's yeah. where it goes to your point where people, if you have this technology where you're able to live in your dream, it's almost like reality. You can escape. Yeah. But at the same time, there's this other theme going on where his wife wants to get back to actual reality. So that's even if she is an actual reality, but this fantasy world messed up her mind so much that it's not like she thinks this is a fantasy world, but she still has that innate desire to experience reality as it truly is. That's why she commits suicide at the end because she thinks it'll be another level up. So there's both that escapism but at the same time, as you were talking about earlier, it was a dark night. Really, that right deep down inside, there's this natural desire. It's to do unnatural what's right. to we. It's unnatural for us to be in this escapist state. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So even if the real world, a real world is tough, right? As nails and things are going wrong, it would be better to stay in that world than to stay in an escapist world where every dream no, and, of yours is fulfilled. And then you think about people who try escapism today with alcohol or drugs or even less psychologically addicting stuff like or you know like chemically addicting stuff like video games or even movies or whatever yeah. is that human flourishing we see in people who get lost in we call it's it's like your demons you're getting lost in a vice you know it, right it, yeah. it, i mean it I doesn't read that seem in the con- article doesn't seem con- <laughs> doesn't seem conducive to human flourishing to pursue escapism in this way right no yeah. you i think it's of course there's always room for it you've got it like watching these movies gives us opportunity to extrapolate these themes yeah but at the same time you have if you're doing it to a if you're making it the center of your life right. because it's, you want to get out of this world yeah, yeah that's that's just wrong i mean mm-hmm. like we said it affects that so wow that was a deep tangent from the dark night rises to well I, if you don't mind i do want to kind of stick with inception again for a Ooh, bit okay. with this escapism stuff I, it just sparks so many things with the the scenes in it it's just like something else but yeah i mean that, i'm getting new insights into inception because that's such seriously. a confusing movie that, yeah yeah in terms of uh, there's just so many scenes from it that are just so memorable like when you have that uh i think it's egypt or some middle eastern country where they're like there's a mob coming oh right? yeah and he's just kind of chilling out in the room and uh, in that how that's how the movie starts, right? Yeah, it's one of the yeah, starting one of the, one of the starting yeah. scenes. 
where it already establishes like because you as the the what you know the the viewer you're like what's going oh, on what's here? going yeah. on right because you're already steeped in reality you know what reality actually looks like you're gonna die you yeah. know what i mean if it if it comes to you but there's um they don't really seem to have that much fear because they understand it's a dream. Yes. They understand yes. that it's a non-reality. I'm going to tie this to uh, to two different animes now. Steinsgate and ReZero, which you guys probably don't know. But no uh, Steinsgate, he invents a time machine, but um, he can always uh, basically restart. Mm. And uh, he's trying to save every Okabe is the main character. He's trying to save everyone around him because uh, the timeline he's in, his best friend dies every single time. In, in experimenting with time travel, he accidentally created a timeline where his friends are dying. Yeah. Oh. And so at, at some point, he becomes numb to the reality mm. of his friends dying. The reality starts slipping because it it's not actually them dying. It's kind of like what? him restarting a timeline. They are actually dying and experiencing the death. But him and his emotions are, are becoming detached from what reality is, mm-hmm. right? Because he can always just restart. restart. Yeah. Interesting. ReZero is really the same. It's more fantasy world, whatever. But he, ReZero, the main character, is cursed with- um, It's like Groundhog every time Day. He, yeah. Every time he dies, he restarts at some point in time previously. Wow. Right? And he's trying to also save the people who are around him. Uh, Subaru is his name. Not the car, but Subaru. <laughs> and- um, Love. So it makes However, super- like- when he dies, you know, the other characters actually experience his death in some type of way. And it's, it's, but he becomes numb to the emotions, his emotions and his like body and everything. It becomes detached from that reality. And mm. I, Inception, I think nails that too. When, um, she is, be, you know, uh, what's her name in the movie? The, the wife, anyways, Cobb's. It's, Mall, it's Mall. actually Mall, which trans- is Latin for bad. Actually. Ah, oh, really? Malus, wow. Malus, Malus, yep. uh, mm, yeah. So she's become so detached from reality and her emotions and everything are just detached that she, like, what actually are her, you know, what is her love for uh, Cobb or well, for her children? Most or whatever of Maul in the movie, we, we only see real Maul by f- him telling his story. The Maul for most of the movie is his own fixation on her. He, she's part of his subconscious. Right. Oh my gosh. I got chills again with the elevator. Like when he goes to the different floors oh, and the other yes. girls with him. Oh, I got chills with that. Yeah. What is it about that movie? Um, but he goes to these different levels of yeah, his subconscious and and she's like locked up in there in different levels, right? Like like you know, there's one where it's like third floor or something where she's like literally shaking the elevator door trying to yes. like get in that she's furious in these and and all of these mouths are like living within him in this alternate reality that he can't escape. And, and he doesn't know how to let go of her and, you know, move on with reality yeah. because it's it's um, it's so possessing his his it current. Uh, wow. It's such an amazing thing with memory, right? Like um, you can be totally detached from, let's say, what was uh the evil that was in your past or whatever you you can think i mean in your current reality you've moved on in life or whatever but it's always haunting you yeah i mean you seen that with yes. military people with ptsd it's like that process of moving on takes so much time mm. and it takes energy it takes effort it takes other people who are you know actively real. leading you out <laughs> yeah. who are real, real right yeah and it's trying to acclimate your memory to the present reality yeah. rather than dwelling on what's happened in the past well, and that kind of fits in with the whole triggers the people with PTSD, things that trigger your memory and hmm. 
And then it's I reached back. And actually, I just, this just came out of the blue. But I'm thinking there's a lot of phenomenology in this. Hmm. Here's a, because there's one quote that talked about, you know, Mal being a figment of his imagination and being part of his memory. At one point near the end, when he comes to this conclusion, where in the, the bottom level, right, and the hotel is sinking down that she's in and she holds the rich guy's son captive. I forgot what his name was. Mm. Um, right, the, the Killian Murphy character. Yeah, right? Cillian, yeah, Cillian Murphy's character. Or Killian yeah. Murphy. Oh, wow. I've said Cillian most of my life, but then I looked at him like, wait, Killian's a real name and I've never ah, heard Cillian, so I don't know. Interesting. Okay. Ra's al Ghul, Ra's al Ghul. I don't Ra's know. <laughs> so uh, Murphy, this uh, Murphy's actor, right? She's holding him hostage. And at one point, um, Cobb says to his wife, Mal, says she, even though like she wants his figment, Mal, wants him to stay with the rest of his life in there and is thinking he could be fulfilled, but he can't be fulfilled. He's saying even is his subconscious memory and that is incomplete because she's not real. So like, oh. even though he knew every single thing about her, every little tick, every little, there's always something missing. I think John Paul too would get a kick, kick out of that basically because yeah. with phenomenology, basically like you have to experience, right? There's something out there that you experience, but at the same time, that thing out there affects you, right? Hence phenomenology. I've been very cursory, very brief glance at it. It's such a deep uh, philosophy. But like you can have subjective feelings about something, but it can't be those subjective feelings alone. You have to have something objective in order to make it complete, I guess. So it's like that interrelation between objective and subjective reality. If you cut one half of it out, i.e. the objective reality in the case of Inception, all of a sudden you have Cobb's problem, which is obsession, fear, anxiety, and ultimately realization. You can't, I, I can't live with this subconscious reality because it's, it's not all there. So I think that's a really good kick in the butt to relativism and subjectivism yeah. in the modern culture that Nolan does right there. Can I, I want to take it a different direction too with ideas. So this, I, the whole reason they're going in that dream and dream and dream and dream. And, you know, the, the, I guess, I don't know. I would say that's the main plot is, uh, DiCaprio and his Actually, wife. No, stuff, I think, and then the subplots, like I would flip it the other based on how the movie works. <laughs> my phone's talking to me again no, based on how the because you're introduced with them as these dream thieves no. so the main plot and most of the action revolves around this reverse mind heist and in, the movie's called Inception Correct. this Inception they're doing and then there's also the themes and the other plot call it a subplot if you will I haven't analyzed which is sub which is if they're both yeah. whatever but then there's the plot of Cobb and his issues yeah. and him with his wife so inception, but anyway, yeah, and and I I would you know you could go either way. Yeah. I think I think you could say the main plot is actually Cobb dealing with yeah. all this stuff, and then the heist is like going alongside it, but or you could say yeah. the heist is like the main part, and then Cobb has to deal with this to to finally go with yeah. it. But I mean, both are you know really impressive. It's, but the um, he's they're successful in the end. Mm. They get the president guy to make the deal right. There's some yeah, deal that get, goes down and it's, it's favorable for it's their actually, client. It's so I always stuff. wondered about that because I, for a movie that was so intricate and deep and all that stuff, for it to have a, and this worked, yeah. meaning my, my escapism, whatever. It wasn't escapism. It was, not, it, was inse true. it was inception. It was planting an idea yeah. in someone. In his own mind. So he thought it came from himself. But it was for business gain. Yes. They were hired. It's a, a violation of the 
do they're doing it too clearly. They're hired by a competitor to the company to who who participates in yeah, he that, that's the um, Saito. The Saito, uh, he want, yeah. isn't it? Because he wants to oversee or something. Yeah, he wants to make sure it goes man. down right. Yeah, does yeah. he survive? He's he does. He survives. He it. almost dies. In he the almost ice, dies in the snow place. He's the one who's able to get Cobb back to his family. Uh, right, and give him back. Yeah, that's how he gets yeah. Cobb. Okay, I should stop for a second for our listeners who haven't seen Inception. First of all, just go see it. But they are a group of people who are. They have these machines that make them able to go into dreams. Uh, go. Uh, into dreams and then dreams of other people. And the idea is there's a president of a massive corporation that they're hired to plant an idea in his mind that's going to be favorable to yeah. this other Normally company. they're thieves. So they're extracting information from people. They're tricking people into giving them information in their own brains. Right. They're creating fake scenarios. But this time it's a f- something that's never been done before. It's an inception that they're hired to Putting go in, an idea in. into his mind. So they get this president on this airplane and they all of them go into his dream that he's created. They go multiple levels down to his deepest subconscious and then attempt to plant the idea. And they end up do planting the idea mm-hmm. in his mind, which that's the very general plot of Inception. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, you have that themes of escapism, whatever else. But I, is there... Is there an epistemology in that, right? A theory of knowledge for us. By the way, let me step back for a second. For people who are like, wait a second, is this movie review? Is this just philosophy hour? Yeah, I know. (laughs) know? Catholic philosophy hour. Why not both? Talking about about Spider-Man and like priestly vocation and stuff. But there's still some things we haven't explored yet. No, totally. But let me me say, this is the deepest movie analysis you'll actually get. Not all this just like- uh, The plot was good. The characters were cool. Yeah, plot was good. Characters were cool. You should see the movie. It's like, no, they're- there are real themes and real yes. ideas and stuff that are mattering in this anyways. And that's what we're talking about it. But okay. The epistemology of inception. Mm. Um, so I'm going to take this from Nietzsche actually, where he said uh, the highest expression of the will to power is the will to truth. This is in beyond good and evil. And he said, the philosopher wields the most power because if you can convince people to see the world, according to your ideas, then you've shaped their whole reality. Mm. Right. Because, we, you know, in some way are like possessed by ideas that our ideas really shape our reality, our worldview, whatever else. And for the will to truth, um, he said philosophers, their way of will to power, which is all with his system is will to truth. Mm. So they say, this is the truth and this is how you are to view the world. Right. Um, and so in this, it's like inception seems to be, uh, the ultimate convincing of an idea. You know, it's like, yeah, you're, you're, Peering deep into their mind to get them to think about the world in a certain way, mm. but in this, see, and, and this is kind of my criticism of it that it it works, and I don't know how to take that because it's it's the purpose of them planning the idea is for their personal benefit and gain, yeah. and it's a business gain that they're making money off of this right. this yeah. deal, and there's no criticism of that, and for me maybe maybe that's maybe I'm looking too far into that, no, but there- I don't know. There Does that is bother something, either of you? No, there is something. It's a violation of the man they do it to, Killian uh, Murphy's character. I can't remember his name. Definitely. The story, it give, it leads to a nice conclusion with Cobb's story. Yes. But there is definitely something clearly, and they're thieves. <laughs> These guys are criminals. Yeah. So th- and they're clearly doing something wrong mm. that yeah. isn't dealt with. 
And it, but this is the way. Doesn't it end with a second job that they're doing? Um, and no. then it spins the top? Are they no, in the no, 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 no. It's when um, no, he, he, goes he goes back, back to his, his family. Yes. Oh. And he's leaving. That's how it ends. Okay, then, yes. But, here, but here's the thing. I would push back on that a little oh, bit. Yeah. Here's why. They never explicitly state whether or not the conclusion that his father wanted him to be his own man was true or not. Never in the movie did they once explicitly state that. No, they're they're just trying to convince him that yes, that's what but it think was. About it. That like Nolan leaves that ambiguous. Was that just them tricking him? Is that what his father really wanted? Was his father just a, um, you know, just a man who was like angry at his son and like was it cutting him out of it? Think yeah. So it. the father is the head of the company. He's yeah. dying, mm-hmm. right? And he's trying to pass the company on to his son. Right. And they have a bad relationship. They have a bad relationship, and right. so they're trying to plant the idea that. Mm-hmm. Uh, his father wanted him to be his own man. Right. And meaning not take over the company? Yeah. Got it. Okay, so that's that's the idea they're trying to that's plant idea. in but him. You're wondering, is that a true idea or is that a fake idea? There's no... There's no mention of whether his old man really did want him yes, to... Yes, there's no mention of it. Like, you yeah. can imply that, no, this is a fake idea. But at the same time, you don't really know for sure, which is interesting. Hmm. Yeah. And what's real for... You know, the, that? The, the president, what's real for so, him? Because yeah. it seems his memory has been changed Going basically by this. Chris Nolan, all throughout his work, I think he's what, 10 or 11 movies in now? Yeah, something like that. Very yeah. frequently in his work, this idea of truth versus falsehood comes up. You go back to Memento, one of his earliest movies. I don't know if either of you have seen not it. I watch it, but the, I want to. Though. The plot is very famous. The guy has amnesia, and to kind of put us in his shoes, the movie starts at the end and plays backwards. Like the scenes are in nearly reverse chronological order with chronological scenes intercut. It's a, it's a Nolan movie that he sometimes gets crazy with his plots. But so the movie starts and we don't know where we are. We just know what happened just like the main character does because he has short term amnesia. Hmm. So so that's the plot device. But ultimately the long story short, the character spoilers eventually figures out that he solved his own problem by lying to himself because mm. he figured out he'd forget. So he pins a bad guy as the guy who was guilty for, if I remember correctly, I'm not sure. I he picks a fake bad guy to kill who was actually not a great dude, but he's not actually the guy responsible for his wife's death. If I remember. And then he sets fake clues for himself to find, to point to this guy being the culprit of his wife's death. And then he kills him. And then he, I think he remembers that he's the one who set up the mystery himself. Ooh. And then his conclusion is it's better to live in a it's better to live in a nice fantasy than a horrible reality. Which Whereas is this theme of truth inception, and lies. So yeah. no one's dealing with this theme of truth and lies and inception. It's like, wait, it it also explores that theme of fantasy versus reality. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Inception for me. And then the end, sorry, sorry, one more. The end of the dark night Mm. also plays into this where Batman says, he basically decides I will, I'll make a lie. That'll be better for Gotham. The lie will be that Harvey Dent was good and I killed those people. So the, the good lie is better than the harsh truth, but the beginning of the dark Knight rises gives an antithesis to that where Bane kicks off his plot by unveiling Batman and goth and, uh, the Gotham people running it, Commissioner Gordon, for lying to the people of Gotham that no, Harvey Dent wasn't a hero who was a fallen icon. He was a fallen icon in a different sense. He fell and was evil. I have this written thing right here from Commissioner Gordon that says Harvey Dent was evil. So the lie that the Gotham PD and Batman told is used against them. So 
so maybe it was better and the people are indignant. So maybe the truth is better than the lie. Who knows? There's this theme running through Nolan's work where he's exploring this idea between which is better, the convenient lie or the truth. Hmm. You know? I think there's also an element of the lie is more removed then it will be less, let's say, because like he, Bane comes right after the lie, right? Because everyone was Harvey Dent. I think it's Bane right after. Eight years. It's oh, actually, eight, there, eight there, years? there's, a, there's a gap. So for, yeah. Okay, for me, I think that people being indignant after eight years is a little less realistic. I think people's memories start waning. Oh, yeah. They forget how awesome Harvey Dent was is. Was it five years or eight years? I forgot. I can't I, remember, but there's a time I'm, jump. Okay, I mean like... Let's, I mean, if let's you take say, let's take the, the the Pentagon Papers that came out except about for, Vietnam. That, except like, for with Harvey Dent, he is kind of held up as a local hero. And I think don't they have like a Harvey Dent yeah, act Harvey or something? Yes, yeah, so like some, there's Harvey like some Dent. big cultural thing around him or something. I am skeptical of. So let's say the effectiveness of the lie versus just telling the honest truth, right? The the deceptive lie for their good. I think numerous. I think if. The more time that passes with the deceptive lie not being unveiled, the less impact it'll have once it is revealed, right? I mean, uh, you know, let's take let's take Vien- the Vietnam War, right? That the fact that we knew for the longest time we were losing the war, still sending people there, it was like failure, or whatever, and they knew all this stuff, but they were actively doing propaganda. You know, it came out uh, fairly, re- uh, you know, nearly immediately after that, but like. Today, do many people discuss the fact that the U.S. government was actively lying to the American people to convince them to go to war? Hmm. And then we all of a sudden we have 9-11, and then now we're in the Middle East for years and years and years sending our young people there. And based on, you know, and now I think we're finding evidence that the U.S. government uh, knew that Saudi Arabia was involved and was not going after Saudi Arabia as much. Uh, Also, they knew that Pakistan may be housing them, but they were trying to justify being in Afghanistan and Iraq more. And um, and so we were sending all our people there, but the more years are removed from the lie, the less impact. How much do the people at large understand that, though? Oh yeah, they they don't see. But uh, you know, uh, likewise with the Harvey Dent stuff. Yeah, how much are you saying? How much do people understand? The government uh, lying to yeah, us yeah. to get us emotionally. Yeah, I wonder. You know, I think we've created a propaganda even, media machine. Yeah. That's just and there's even the bizarre thing where it's not a lie, but it's clearly stuff that would seemingly be a violation of our constitutional rights. But going back to Snowden, yeah, he releases his thing, and I can't remember who it was. I think it might have been John Oliver or something who interviewed him. And there are people who one confuse him with Assange and don't know who exactly who he is. Yeah, and two, there are people who just don't care yeah they're like oh yeah the government was spying on us okay i have nothing i have nothing to hide whatever they were trying to catch terry's who cares it's like wait people just there's some people obviously are indignant Mm. but there's some people just don't care once it's revealed that something bad was happening So going back to batman with bane revealing that years after harvey dennis had his meteoric rise and then you know fall of prominence i think it seems like the lie should have worked for Batman and for the police commissioner, I think according I to reality, in my opinion. It's contingent because, as John was saying, there's already, I think it was called the Dent Act. Yes. Where they had all a, these prisoners are put into oh, prison, right? Okay. So once Bane exposed that Dent, what Dent did, that destroyed his act. So now you have an act that is solidified. People think, all right, this is a part of everyday life now. All of a sudden, you bring in the roots of the past and uproot something that's part yeah, the, the, of your everyday Wasn't it like life. a mass incarceration act, too? It was like so there act. was like a mass incarceration built on a lie. Yes. So that's I think that's why it was mm. so visceral for the people of Gotham City, because unlike it's, okay, it's a lie, but it's been such a long time, whatever. It's like, 
it's a lie that affects something that's established. <laughs> and I think that's where the difference comes in. If it's a lie, try and think of like historical examples of that. Where oh, like JFK and then Lyndon B. Johnson's major programs that he got passed through the Senate and all sorts mm-hmm. of stuff, Be- and civil rights stuff and whatever else. Now, what if the CIA? No, 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 we're not going into that. <laughs> Or Russia or whoever, but uh, there definitely were U.S. generals who wanted him dead. I'm not. I'm not going to name names. We'll go. This is a movie podcast. podcast. This is a movie podcast. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Life's a movie, John. Uh, <laughs> Didn't you watch Inception? Uh, yeah, yeah. Let's watch Inception. Um, yeah. Okay. So eight years after Harvey Dent, it, his name was used. He's the martyr or whatever. Now you expose him as no, he wasn't a martyr. He was actually a a, a, a fallen hero, fallen from fallen from grace, yeah. fallen from grace, and. Uh, that's kind of Bane's one of Bane's main points, right? Is uh, well, it's they well, lied to you. It's been a while since I've seen it, but yeah, they lied to you is a big one. And then he pushes institutional corruption, and it's really interesting because he starts out saying it'll be an anarchist paradise here on Gotham. I'm get here's the line: I am taking Gotham from the corrupt and giving it back to you, the people. Mm. When ultimately he's just manipulating them to make them eat themselves because he is working with. Talia Al Ghul hmm. to destroy to finish Ra's Al Ghul's goal of destroying sure. this this symbol of Western degeneracy. Oh, that's his almost that that's his main. Oh, doesn't he? Does he come from the East as well? Right, Bane. Uh, I mean, it has very the, the whole has very like you know the whole where he, in the com- has very Eastern yes. themes too. In the comics, he is from South America, but I think he's from the East and the or it's implied. Yeah, he, he's tied with the League of Shadows in the movie, which is Eastern. Okay, and they want to destroy this decadent, uh, yes, you know, corrupt Western, Western society, um, and that's just. And he wants to teach Batman also what real suffering is, you know. Yeah. Um, and sends him there, and then Batman ends up getting out of there without on his own effort, and he has to overcome fear. No, fear. no, 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 no. He does not have to overcome fear. He has to understand that fear is a natural part of life and can be used for good in his own life. Mm, yeah. Cause it's, he has to clot the way he gets out is he takes the rope off, which is the safety line to get out of the hole. Cause he's tried climbing and he, there's a part where you're climbing and you have to make a leap and grab on Yeah, and he can't make the leap. And so the guy tells him, take off the rope. You have <laughs> to have yours. fear as a motivator. And then the theme under that is that fear is a natural part of life. You can't get, o- yeah, you, that- you have to just accept it. And he uses fear to give him that extra push to be able to make the jump. That, Cause now he has that fear of death. I think that's what we're discussing. The first podcast where in Batman begins, he has to emblemize fear, right? He yes. Has to become an he uses fear. fear against the, yeah. And he has to be fear incarnate. Yeah. That means taking over your fear and meshing it into your character. And therefore it doesn't affect you anymore. But now, like you said, you have to realize, no, it's a part that is a motivator. So there's that, I think we coined this last time, the anti-parallel sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Anti-parallels, Anti-parallels, yeah. yes. We've already hit around Spider-Man, Inception, and Batman. Spider-Man. I'm definitely going to entitle did. it that. Yeah, I don't know if we did. We didn't really get much Spider-Man on Spider-Man. Justice. No, no we, we did not. Uh, so now let's move to his inclusion in Marvel. <laughs> you know, <laughs> the later... Uh, Okay, what do we think about the newer uh, Spider-Mans Oof. getting away from the trilogy? I haven't watched either. Homecoming. I haven't watched I mean, either of the. It's Marvel just like Spider-Mans. a totally different mood. It's totally, it, it, it's uh, like a high schooler drama. It's well, I think weird. it's interesting because again, I haven't seen the Marvel Spider-Man movies, but the impression I get, and have you either of you seen I've them? I've seen them. Yeah. So you can tell I've me if I'm one. wrong or not. It seems that since Spider-Man is the relatable teenager superhero, they kind of made him a modern teenager in these ones. Is yes, that correct? They did. they did. He's not quite... Okay. Uh, it's, it's definitely way less dark. It's more it's fun, less dark, upbeat. More fun. 
it is. Um, I'm trying to think because there's only so much. Like there's so much about the Raimi trilogy we didn't discuss. What's the kid's name? Compare Tom Holland. Tom Holland. Yeah. That we could compare to the. Oh, new we can movies. move back down probably. We can move back down, but I think the new movie. The one thing I admire, like there's this one part in Homecoming that I really admire. All right, well, for, first way, his first introduction was in Civil War. Okay, yes. they yes. nailed it in Civil War. Hmm. I think because he they imply that. His uncle had died, and this is a responsibility he has. And he's this kid in the street who has his own homemade vest. Basically, he has his homemade uh, sweatshirt, homemade mask, homemade goggles, right? And he's trying his best to prevent crime in the streets. The Iron Man says, hey, kid, want to join the big time? And that's, I think that's a very meta introduction to Spider-Man. Like, oh, yeah. hey, kid, you've been on the street this whole time. Raimi trilogy. Did you want to join the big more, boys now? Or even more immediately, the... Amazing Spider-Man. Yes. Like, hey, you've been on the uh, yeah. street this time. You know, been grounded with the plebeians. You know, want to join the ranks of the Avengers. And then his first movie is called Homecoming. <laughs> yes. Literally, so Homecoming to Marvel. So, but, but they nailed Spider-Man's character because that is, they already established, okay, he's already set his own persona, right? He already he established his own character. He's established his own heroism, his own moral virtue. But now he's flung into this world of yeah. superheroes. And action. frankly, we all know Spider-Man's origin story. Yes, so there's no need, need to read yeah. it. I think... Homecoming at first is a little weird because of how tech reliant Spider-Man is, like his suit, like how in the first part of the movie, it's all about finding the tech in his suit and um, being under Tony Stark's shadow. And he's always, he's waiting for this mission. You know, he's waiting, Tony Stark, I need another mission. Tony Stark, I need another mission. And then Tony Stark's whole emphasis is why don't you just be a friendly neighborhood Spider-Man? And he, tr- Peter Parker tries to, so he has the vulture who is basically the Vulture's main plot is just to steal some Avengers equipment. It's not like a world-ending threat. It's just this guy. I, that's really admirable, too. Is the Vulture in The Homecoming is a really relatable villain. His only goal is to steal because he was out of... So he was put out of a job in the movie because uh, Tony Stark and Damage Control took over the cleanup operations in New York City after the Chitauri attack in the first Avengers movie. So um, Adrian Toomes, a.k.a. Vulture says, wait a minute, like this is my job and now I've lost my job. I've lost, you know, this contract. How am I supposed to provide for my family? So he reverts to stealing using the alien tech he found in the event after the Avengers attack. So he's a really blue collar villain where he's like, I steal because the government stole from me. I steal because the rich stole from me. Almost like a um like I only steal because I'm providing for my family and it's justified. So I really admire that down to earth approach they have to Vulture, which Corresponds to Spider-Man's down-to-earth approach, down in like down-to-earth approach in Spider-Man. And that's a common theme with Spider-Man villains too. They've had something terrible happen to them, yes. so and they now they they lash out exactly. And I think um, so. The Admiral now here's where I really like Homecoming is when Tony Stark says it's because Spider-Man screws up after like in the ferry scene in the scene where the Vulture attacks this ferry because he's stealing uh, you know something like I forgot what it was like Chitauri. No, there's a deal going down. And Spider-Man tries to prevent it from happening, but he's the vulture. Like it messes up one of the tech, ex, like one of the alien tech uh, bombs explode. All of a sudden, you have the boat falling apart. Spider-Man tries pulling it back together. Unlike Spider-Man Two, where he stops the train, he doesn't succeed. There's something wrong. But Tony Stark has to come in and save his butt, um, mm. and has to save the ferry. And so Spider-Man failed. And I think that's one point in the movie. Like Spider-Man actually failed to save someone. And that's a really prominent theme. All other Spider-Man movies, like there's a failure on his part. But at least he was saved by Tony Stark. But now Tony Stark says, you were irresponsible. Now it's time for you to take, I'm going to take away your suit, going to take away your power, and it's up to him. 
but now there's still a threat of the Vulture to loose, right? So Spider-Man in the third act has to become his own hero. He has no tech. His, his tech is gone. He's back in his old sweatsuit again, literally like his sweater suit, his homemade suit. All he has is his powers, his ingenuity. And there's this one scene where he attacks Vulture, but Vulture outsmarts him, like knocks out the pillar, the base of the building, falls down on Spider-Man, and he has to muster up all his strength to push out of the building. And it takes every ounce of will he's got, which is relates to issues 33 of the amazing spider-man 1964 i think anyway uh like there was a really nice part. dropping wisdom on us bro <laughs> and that's References. really like look that's a really one of the more famous spider-man storylines early spider storylines if you want to look it up i think it's issue 30 to 33 of the original spider-man series by mm. stanley Steve check your collection guys yes check your collection. <laughs> or check online legally yeah. of course anyway uh yeah. right uh, <laughs> right yeah <laughs> no so, comment no comments but anyway like it's spider-man stops Vulture by his own power, his own responsibility, his own ingenuity. Mm. And that's what I really admire about Homecoming is that he's starting to become his own person. And at the end, Tony Stark says, hey, you want to become Avenger? And offers him the Iron Spider suit. And Peter Parker says, no, I want to become a friendly neighborhood Spider-Man for a while. So he literally, Spider-Man in Civil War gets thrown into the upper echelon of superheroes. Spider-Man believes in subsidiarity. Yes, he does. <laughs> literally, he does. Actually, that's a good theme. Like, he le- believes in becoming a friendly neighborhood. Of course, in Infinity War, they had to have Spider-Man, so he gets thrown into Avengers immediately afterwards. But that's why I admire about Homecoming is that down to earth, okay, Spider-Man ultimately, even though the tech stuff was kind of weird in the beginning, it was cool seeing him integrated with Iron Man and Avengers and Captain America. But by the end, he becomes his own hero. He proves his own self. Uh, at the end. That's why I admire by the uh, homecoming. Yeah. It's uh, it's definitely a very different take than the trilogy. Yes, <laughs> I mean, it is less dark. Um, it seems like the originals too were a little bit more character heavy, maybe. Mm-hmm. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, they were. They definitely were. And then this, okay, big, you know, we talked about Spider-Man being like um, a very organic biological in the trilogy. Like all it's, uh, each of the villains has some like bodily thing that they end up incorporating, but then in Homecoming, it's a suit. Excuse me, it's his suit, yes, which is external to him and can be taken away, right? Could, I think which is well, really I mean, he does still have the wall crawling and stuff, and the super yeah, but it's, it's a lot less. It's a lot less um, integrated into his right, person. Into his- I mean, if you take Iron Man, right, he has the um, the thing in his chest, reactor, right? Yeah, that. Binds him to his suit, meaning he he's the only one who can use his suit, right? Well, there are other suits with the reactor built into them. Okay, with his, it's just it keeps him alive because yeah. Well, up comic until book Iron stuff. Man three, Iron where it gets it out, surgery, yeah. yeah. Um, where 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 what? I I haven't seen it. So in the original Iron Man, he has a piece of shrapnel from an IED in his chest, and the in the cave where he is, him and another doctor who the terrorists had make an arc reactor is like an improvised electromagnet type thing to keep the shrapnel away from entering his heart. Hmm. So it literally keeps him alive. And then by Iron Man three, which was surprisingly a long time for Tony after he got back to the West with our medicine and stuff, he, yeah. he finally gets a surgery to get it all fixed. I think is right. I haven't seen Iron Man three in forever. Yeah. That's but, when he finally gets it fixed. Um, obviously Iron Man, it's, more external and some internal, right? It's and then Spider-Man ends up they're, having they're, that same, armor. yeah, that same kind of movement. Whereas you have somebody like like Thor, and he's just a god. Yeah, <laughs> just, just, he yeah. just all has all his powers on him. Yes, you have the Hulk who can not really control it, kind of control it sometimes. Who enters into it, and later in End War, he ends up like in his like he integrates Gandhi mixed yeah. state. <laughs> he's yeah. like he's like half Gandhi, half like 
ready to rip your arms off or whatever. Um, yeah, I'm just thinking through the other ones. Uh, uh, Black America, Widow is just I mean, super spy. Yeah, yeah she's just super like spy. Russian Captain America, kind of actually yeah, without yeah. the serum. Yeah, Captain America is a fully in- integrated like yes. that earlier Spider-Man idea too, where he yeah, his power was given to him. Power was given by a special serum. Yeah, and it's integrated. He can't get rid of it. He it's like it's part of his character forever. That's what um. Father Mike Schmidt, remember we talked about briefly Father Mike Schmidt's yeah. video on who is the most Christian superhero, and he concluded Captain America because the power, right? You can't, it's almost like grace. You, you, once grace is in you, right, it becomes a part of your being. Captain America, he gets a serum, it's a part of his being, and you can't really get rid of that. Unless you, of course, mortal sin, but that's a different story. Um, I think that's another, that's really interesting. Like back to the original Spider-Man trilogy, right? He oh. can lose his power. Oh yeah, which is interesting. Mm. So like in Catholicism, right? But, it, can, but it's an internal change. It's not like getting rid of a suit, right? Something. No, it's not like getting. Yeah. Rid of, but this is interesting because according to Catholic theology, right, you can receive sanctifying grace, but you can lose it by choosing something else other than what you were called to mm-hmm. be and mm. who were mortal law. For Spider Man, he chooses. Oh, we got a little fly here. Okay, I'm done. All right, we're good. You got just it. came oh, wow. from Mike well, Pence to us. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Rest yeah. in peace, the fly on Mike Pence's head. You you will go down in history. <laughs> I'm voting Anyways. for it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Third party. Am I right? <laughs> Kanye I mean, it's fly about as, 2020. It's about as effective as voting for a third party. You can vote for the fly on Mike. <laughs> can you pencil that in? I'm going to do that at the ballot. Uh, you know, uh, Trump. No, uh, no, Kanye fly. Kanye, Kanye fly. fly. Oh yeah. my god. No. Yeah, Kanye and fly. Who would be his running mate? The fly. Oh, got it. Well, I mean, like in reality, is I have no idea. Kind of <laughs> uh, by the way, debate on Sunday uh, for anyone who's listening to this before uh, Sunday's debate on Trump, which would be amazing. I'm off. I'm off topic, but yeah, this external and internal. Yeah. Um, I find it. So like Batman, if we're going back to Batman, he can lay aside his suit whenever he wants, and he has no inherent internal power except he's for like his money in he has money and he has pushed his body to peak physique he like we said in the last podcast he's like the peak of human accomplishment yes no. a human virtue yeah and there's an interesting part in the dark night where it's rachel's letter or his letter to rachel i think rachel's letter to him, something like rachel's that, letter to him rachel's letter to him where basically oh, when that, before that batman says i can be with you once i'm done my job as batman is done and he says the way it can be done is if Harvey Dent, right, can control the situation. He sees Harvey as his out because he thinks Harvey, he, he's Gotham's white knight. Yeah, white he knight. He, th- as the DA through the law, can clean Gotham up so Batman will not be needed. Right. And so, but that's when Batman can finally rest is when his duty is mm-hmm. done. So that, But that's a self-imposed duty, I guess, which is really interesting. Uh, is it self-imposed or is it well if we're gonna bring the uncle if we're gonna bring the uncle ben principle into it Mm. with great power comes great responsibility what's more powerful than being functionally infinitely wealthy that's true and very driven that's that's true but at the same time like batman the reason so he is with uncle ben it's a very clear parallel okay spider-man has his power by accident Mm. i think it kind of relates to our talents right our talents, we don't choose what we're good at. I don't like, we can practice, but like yeah. we have certain inherent Bruce, talents. Bruce Wayne was born into wealth. He was. But at the same time, there's this different mission where Spider-Man, the yeah. way he uses his powers, his powers are literally geared towards saving citizens and mm-hmm. fighting crime. Because how, like, 
if there's a supernatural threat that comes or a super not supernatural ugh, that's other stuff but like superhuman threat that comes along like green goblin who's the only one who could defeat him super another superhuman being spider-man whereas with batman he could have used his wealth to help out right the it's the slums of Gotham, and he could have continued doing what his father was doing, but Batman saw that was not sufficient. So it, it's basically he saw this degradation, and he thought that the only way he can combat that is to become a symbol. And it does work at the very end, right? In you know, Dark Knight Rises, he ultimately does become the symbol that brings hope to Gotham. But at the same time, it's not so much a calling, like an explicit calling mm-hmm. as inspiring. That's an explicit calling. Like with great power comes great responsibility. As Batman, uh, his parents die. His parents don't call him on to vengeance. That's his own determination. Yeah. Whereas Spider-Man, Uncle Ben literally says, with great power comes responsibility. Great responsibility. Remember that. And Batman's like, oh, I saw my parents die. This is how I'm going to achieve this end. Hmm. You know, what's interesting to me is like trying to figure out what Batman represents. Like we've said, you know, human complete, um, like the perfect, he's got total money, physique, the whole thing, the peak of natural human man. At the same time, he is an extra governmental extra. He's like outside of the whole structure of Gotham. Yes. And he intervenes when he's needed. Yeah. But like, he's the ultimate, um, he's above all of it. Right. And with his wealth, he stays out. He can stay out of, yeah, he, can. he can stay out of any trouble and whatever. And <sighs> He's like, yeah, he's like the god of Gotham it's in, an, in a small G sense. The Dark Knight or the Watchful Guardian or the Guardian Angel or something he's like, like the, that. Yeah, like the Guardian, Guardian Angel, Angel is, yes. a, is a good way to put it. But ultimately, his power is is still tempered. Like, it's it's not ultimate. It's still right. reliant on his the cooperation. His bank. Yeah, well, it's reliant on that totally, which is a granted to mm-hmm. him. Right, I mean, there's an element of where he has to become the Batman and stuff, but it's it's kind of like a granted. He's given that perfection, but it's contingent on Gotham. You know, people like uh, Harvey Dent trying to clean up Gotham and stuff. Uh, but it, it seems to have kind of an Eastern Taoist Taoist element of like the light comes in and then the evil counteracts it and then whatever. But there's no resolution. I don't know. This. I think. That's part of what compels me and makes me love Batman so much as a character because he's the peak of human virtue or natural virtue. Man is not sufficient to overcome darkness, Mm. especially one as flawed as Batman, who, as we see with him in his surveillance, with his brutalizing of he breaks the mob boss's legs, he brutalizes the Joker. He is definitely a flawed person. So, and he is not sufficient to overcome evil. There's no hint of grace or of God in these movies. It's yeah. more of a picture of the peak of human virtue and its insufficiency to deal with evil. Mm. But he succeeds, though, in the end, which is interesting. In the Dark Knight Rises, he doesn't just become the peak of human virtue. He becomes a symbol. He, he, he transcends his own human yeah. nature, which is a very, ah, what's that heresy... I forgot now. I don't know. Ah, anyways. Like, Describe it a little bit. Is that basically the heresy where basically man can perfect himself? Ah. Oh, Pelagianism? Oh. Yeah, Pelagianism. Yeah, thank yeah, you. Pelagianism, yeah. yeah. Man can perfect himself, transcend without grace. nature, without grace, yeah. Yeah. Except for it's not Batman alone in that. It, again, it's not grace, but it's not Batman alone. It's that he gets the police to rise back up after being beat down, and he gets the cooperation of the people. Mm-hmm. So again, it's graceless. So 
isn't as fun, but he transcends himself, right? Mm. He transcends himself. He becomes the literal symbol. This is for me also with the fact that it ends up well, right? In the end, right? His, the natural human virtue wins the day in the end, right? Uh, For me, once again, it's like for now. Okay. yeah, it's a for now element. Wait, okay, wait, wait, wait. I had themes. The of- movie doesn't just end with Batman and Catwoman in the European thing. It also ends with Robin, who we ah. find out is Robin at the very end, taking up the mantle. Batman doesn't solve evil forever and then ride off into the sunset. He solves the problem that was facing Gotham at that time and passes the mantle of Batman down to the next mm. dude. Yeah, but it feels, a, it feels if like, the Batman yeah. mantle still exists. There's an implication there that look, evil isn't solved. This individual problem was solved for now. That's true. So it's almost like yes. Uh, okay, another series. Uh, no, I'm in agreement. There's another series I was thinking of, Avatar: The Last Airbender. Oh my gosh! <laughs> a great, I, thank a great goodness series. I just watched that. Thank goodness I finished it. Uh, oh, did you? I yes. did. I watched. I don't it, want to so say I thank you it. to ne- Netflix, but no, they yeah. did bring it back into the cultural did, zeitgeist yeah. more prominently. Okay, <laughs> love it. Great, fantastic. I, I always say, because uh, watching it as an adult versus watching it as a kid, <laughs> I say it, it straddles a line between cool and cringe the whole time, in my opinion. It's I the humor. That's yeah, not, humor that's not how I would phrase it, but re-watching it, I had the exact same issue where there's so many great parts, but so many parts where they're clearly catering to children. Yes. With like soccer so- or, or kind of like anime tropes. Like there's a beach episode and stuff. It's like except for that's a good beach episode because they use it as a character. They do like an episode. Oh, good. Okay. Um, and, it yeah. fleshes out all. It fleshes out. It fleshes out. Fleshes <laughs> out. <laughs> the flesh <laughs> is out, but also it fleshes out all the villain characters. Right. Okay, but the so now that you've seen the ending, <laughs> they bring it right? all to bear. The as Avatar ends up, you know, the the Fire Lord Ozai, the greatest threat. The Phoenix King in the end, right? And you have Mark Zula. Hamill, by the way, Mark voiced Hamill. him. Yes. He what? He voiced what? he voiced Phoenix King Ozai in the last season. Yeah. Dang. And by the way, he was also involved in, in the yeah, Batman. Batman yeah. uh, he voices the, the Joker TV, TV in the animated series and in lots of the games. Yeah. Which to this day, I think a lot of people think the Joker voice that Mark Hamill did is like the best Joker voice. A lot of people think that Batman in the animated series is the best adaptation of the character. Back to Avatar, though. But anyway, yeah, it's great. Yeah. Anyway. Um, in the end, the Avatar succeeds in restoring balance and all this stuff. Uh, you know, they have the very explicit Taoist symbol uh, with the water. Um, what is it? The water tribe when in the in the the I think they're the northern water tribe. Talking the season one finale. Season with the one finale, koi fish. right? Yeah. With the koi fish, right? I mean, it's oh just yeah, yeah, explicit, yeah. right? The Avatar restores balance, and the Fire Nation isn't allowed to. And this this idea, this is very Eastern that ultimately human virtue or whatever will be enough to restore balance and evil will still persist. But as long as it's balanced, then somehow we just continue, right? Mm-hmm. Now, obviously there's, there's explicit, that. I mean, Christ, in Christian theology as well, it's like yeah. until the final judgment, there will be, you know, there'll be the wheat and the chaff, yeah. even within the church among those who are the redeemed. So evil's not definitively destroyed in the sense in, in this life, uh, there's still evil that exists. Mm. However, there's a definitive in the end, you know, death will be destroyed and evil will be destroyed. Yeah, and look, I, but that's absent from Batman. That's absent from Avatar. I wanted to offer a little pushback. Cheapened, I want to offer a little pushback on Avatar because clearly it has a lot of Eastern influence and this isn't Catholic, but going back, some religions kind of tap into aspects of the truth sometimes in that the Avatar is not human virtue. 
what does avatar mean in Hindu theology? It's the embodiment of a god. Mm. It's not yeah, that. That's, that's where the name comes from. And in this specific mythos they created for the avatar universe, it's a human. And this avatar spirit descends upon a human from the tribe and they're. He channels it. And he channels it. So it is literally a spiritual intervention that cause, it, there's a spiritual dynamic to it where it's yeah. not purely human virtue. And it steps in when it's really needed, right? So when he's not fighting uh, Ozai and he's like flying around, you know, and, and they're they're fighting each other and Ozai's trying to attack him and all this stuff. And it's only at the very final moment where Ozai's got him pinned against a rock and it hits His that, back, like, that, yeah. that back where it's the spot, which is like, in, you know, brings the avatar spirit in him. And then he's like, that's when it goes through and finally he takes away the bending of Ozai, the, the fire bending. Yeah. Um, but it only steps in at the very bleakest when, you know, the, when the world needs it, right. When the world needed the most, the avatar <laughs> vanished, right. It's like, um, but there's kind of a evil was let to run its course. And then at the end of the day, bring it to star Wars, right. Evil, the evil empire, but the prophecy is still fulfilled. At yes. the end. Like very Eastern, in my opinion, mm-hmm. that, uh, that notion of evil having, Whereas I think more in the Christian conception is a, uh, so let's take man falls, Cain kills Abel. Like the first story is fratricide after oh, the first story is you know, after the after fall. The fall. Yeah, okay. And um, you have <laughs> this skip- tower of Babel being built and then you have mankind, the sons of God saw the daughters of men were fair. So you had this, um, the uh, just line of Seth ends up intermarrying with the unjust line of Cain and uh, with pagan women at that point. And they have just, and they lose God. And instead of saying, you know, and then God repents of his creation. And it's just like, it's better that it's wiped out. Right. Yeah, that's- but there's a righteous man who he saves. Right. But it's all, uh, it all leads up to Christ who definitively defeats it. Mm-hmm. The story is and evil not only wins. defeats it, but yeah. rehabilitates it. Correct. The story is yeah. evil wins until Christ comes. Ultimately, the mm. evil's in control, and then Christ comes, and then it's yeah. Then uh, there's a righteous fallen. line that's preserved, but it's an anticipation of Christ who definitively solves it. Right. Now, I think these stories—if you take Avatar, you take Batman, you take um, uh, what was the other one to reference? Star, Star Wars. Wars. I think it's almost like an Old Testament playing out, meaning. Mm. We're going to preserve, so, I mean, take like the later Star Wars movies where they talk about the Skywalker line and all that type of stuff and the Jedi spirit preserves. For, it's like, it yeah. seems to be stories in anticipation of a definitive victory, Ending, yeah. which would be a graced, uh, you know, where, where death and evil are definitively destroyed and then it's the progression of grace transforming the universe. But um all these stories seem to have just a Taoist, like an like a kind of Old Testament that there's a righteous line preserved that will eventually one day, you know, Eve, yeah, conquer, conquer evil. evil. But I mean, only conquer yeah. smaller evils. With Star life. Wars and Avatar, they're explicitly influenced by Eastern thought. Yeah, explicitly. Yeah, and I think it's just kind of like an Old Testament theology hmm. in a lot of ways, right? Because uh, you have the line of David preserved after uh, you have Rehoboam and Jeroboam who separate the northern from the southern Israelites. You have the Judah, Judah and Benjamin, and you have the northern. The northern ends up getting destroyed and scattered. And then the line of David, uh, the Davidic kingdom ends up getting destroyed and they get taken off to Babylon. They get to restore the temple. But the Davidic line, when the temple was destroyed, the um, the genealogies 
were scattered and uh, a lot of the genealogies of who's the descendants of Solomon or whatever were were lost, mm. right? So it's like, who's the real Davidic heir? And that was the anticipation of the Messiah. And it's like that line was preserved even in Babylon. And you have Daniel's prophecies that the Messiah will come. The son of David is going to come. Isaiah's prophecies. Um, and then you have Christ coming. And then it's like, he's the one who definitively defeats, defeats evil, evil, defeats yeah. death, accepts the suffering. And it's not a... Taoist, like, well, evil will return again sometime. It's like God incarnate definitively de- defeats it. Evil is defeated, but now man has to cooperate with it. Now yes, man has to cooperate like- with grace. Whereas, whereas in, um, and so now the march of history is, uh, is towards heavenly fulfillment. And whereas like Batman, it's like, okay, well, he just defeats it for now, but you're going to need Batman. And if it's not Batman, someone else has to take up the mantle. And, It'll look really bleak sometimes. And yeah. It'll be whatever. It's it's a story and look of a conclusion. Mm. And I think that's the reason why you can make endless movies about it. That's true. Is because if you gave it a definitive Christ-like fulfillment, then it takes a whole different character at that point. It's almost like our society is subconsciously trying to reinstitute Christ into plots, but look, can't ah, figure it out. Look at how prevalent Christ types are in our movies and our stories. No. Batman... Look at how often self-sacrifice becomes a theme for the hero. Batman has to sacrifice himself for Gotham. You know, I could. Harry Potter has a death and resurrection at the end of the Harry Potter series. Luke could, uh, with Darth Vader, he doesn't fight him. Ultimately, it's a passive, kill him. It's a except. Yes, there. You can just look through, go through your favorite stories in pop culture and in our tradition post Christ. How prevalent, even in non-explicitly Christian sources these Christian themes come out when we're creating heroes. I think that's what we touched on the last podcast was the archetypes again. Yeah. Yes. Remember how literally Christ is the fulfillment. Cause you, even before Christ, you had these figures who self-sacrificed. Of course he had like in Iliad, Odyssey, people sacrifice for honor, right? Which is a very much lesser goal to fulfill, but people who are willing, you, know, you still had that typology. Okay. You have the man like who's willing to sacrifice. Well, maybe not so explicitly beforehand, but after Christ there is. But like Christ as a fulfillment of those archetypes that are natural in man. So even though like Christ brings it to the forefront and we have something to imitate, but that's also something God put in us since the beginning of time naturally, I think, to recognize those themes of, okay, the self-sacrifice and the Savior and humanity is in a fallen state. So I think that's really interesting. It's like... Mm. I think I've been thinking about it. So I'm taking modern political thought right now as a, as a class. And I've been thinking about Dr. the role, Jones. Dr. Jones, the role of like doc, the role that doctrine and theology really plays in shaping our whole vision. Right. And I really feel like Calvinistic Luther. That's theology. back what you said about Nietzsche. Yeah. Your, what you believe the world to be affects how you live in the world. Absolutely. And I think that theological doctrine precedes the philosophical ideas and the the story and the plots and everything like that. Like all these stories are, you know, we're analyzing the grace that gets in it and these, you know, these other Catholic themes and Christian themes that seem to be like subconsciously and subliminally, you know, there. Um, but it's, it's, uh, it, it seems incomplete in so many different ways. It's like, they don't, they don't fully Okay, we we talked Lord of the Rings a lot last yes. time. A Catholic who's explicitly Catholic, who his, is intentionally putting these things. Except in. for in his letter, he says the Lord of the Rings is a fundamentally Catholic work. First, 
implicitly than explicitly. So it's his worldview shaping the way he creates this fantasy world. Then he realizes it. And there's like, okay. And then he brings it out intentionally this time. Right. Yeah. And, and for us, you know, for stories where the, the idea is like mankind can never ultimately overcome the evils, mm-hmm. meaning there's no salvation. There's no ultimate salvation. I think that plays out very clearly. And I think that's one of the moves to the East because the East, I think, takes that Old Testament. We, we just have to have the law and we have to have a king. Well, that's someone what who can, the Tao, it, Tao means the path. Yeah. It's the way you're supposed to Let live. me drop some Dr. Han little uh, nugget of gold <laughs> on you too. With He said that the Confucian, so there was a period of time which historians of religion and just historians oh, this in is general that weird one. Yeah. don't really know why, but at a certain period of time, like I think this was uh, 900 BC, don't quote me on it, the reign of Solomon. Around the reign of Solomon, there was an explosion of monotheism in the world. Hmm. In Greece- in Asia, with you had Confucianism as a system, uh, like moral systems, these big, broad philosophical moral systems, and monotheism gained real prominence around the era of Solomon. Hmm. And so, remember, like Solomon's wisdom. Yeah. Uh, there's research going on right now that his wisdom about monotheism and and uh, and and the wisdom of Solomon end up spreading to other parts of the world. Wow. And so, taking that whole like Taoist, Confucianist, whatever you want to call it, that Eastern, I think it has very clear relation to an Old Testament conception of reality where um, God is setting everything in motion, but man has fallen and evil and ultimately can't redeem himself, mm. right? Take it with the the Good Samaritan parable where um, the Samaritan being the Christ figure in the story, uh, you have the priest who's like natural religion can't help man. And man is ultimately fallen, right? Beaten down by concupiscence, stripped half naked, his... Uh, uh, his likeness of God is taken away and he's left half dead, meaning he, he's doomed to death, mm-hmm. right? That's the nat- that's the state man finds himself post-fall. Priest is natural religion, which can ultimately help man. Uh, and then you have the law uh, represented by the Levites who also can't help man, but it's the Samaritan, Christ, who's, well, the Samaritans were half pagan, half Israelite, yeah. and Christ is fully God, fully man, who can actually, who has compassion on him, binds his wounds, mm-hmm. And then brings them to the end. Um, I think these stories are stuck on a Levite or a uh, or a Old Testament conception of, you know, you may you may be able to kind of like help man up on occasion, yeah, but you can't bind his wounds and heal him, hmm. right? You may be able to solve his problems for the time, but it's ultimately never he can never really stand on his own. Uh, good there has to be some external that's like so the law uh, for the old testament jews is like that external practice that makes sure you're compliant because uh, as paul says the law was written on stone Mm. because but in the new testament it's written on our hearts meaning there's an internalization of the law so if you just think about what's the purpose of positive law we have positive law because man's fallen if exactly. everyone was perfect and in tune with natural law, we wouldn't need positive law. <laughs> right. Yeah. right. Which is like a Christian civilization moves. You want to get deregulation? You know, you uh No, I want uh, good regulation. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, uh, oh, yeah. libertarians, right? They think, and this whole like Rousseau idea that, you know, if we return to a state of nature, it's like, no, more. Oh no, my gosh, it'd be. Yeah, Our nature's but, perverted, man. That, that, but, <laughs> so that goes to the Aristotelian um, theory of politics and his politics and his Nicomachean ethics. Aristotle says that, in fact, 
the so society is the end of man, mm. which is really interesting. That man, he says, insofar as he's man, like he, the way he is structured, the way he is built, and the way he has to function, it's a social animal. Is a social animal that therefore, like Rousseau, flips on his head, says, "Oh, we'd be great if we went back to primitive ways." No, in the be- like in the very start of humanity, right? Man was ultimately wired to be a social animal. The only way he could achieve that is to build a society that is literally wired. In and the, and the, society. the society was organic. Man yeah. formed societies. It exactly. wasn't like we sat down and said, let's try the social experiment. Exactly. No, I, I mean, I don't see any evidence of that in history. It seems that different civilizations of different people all over the world individually naturally form societies. So, exactly. And you know what? The fun, I have a funny story to tell if you don't mind. So, Please. Years so I just read the Nicomachean Ethics for honors in the spring of this year, which fortunately, you know, but anyway, uh, but like I remember reading it and it impacted me. It's like, oh, wow. The, the reason why it impacted me because I'd come to a similar conclusion without ever touching Aristotle in 2015 when I was in high school. Mm-hmm. So there I had this uh, agnostic friend who held a Rousseauian position of if we just went back to the original state, man would be fine. And the thought that went to my head once again, without ever touching a finger on Aristotle, was, wait a minute, if man is truly wired to be a social animal, wasn't society inevitable, i.e. society being the end of man? So it's, once again, we hit on that natural law, like written in our hearts, that there's something, like if I could come, like me, a freshman in high school, you know, knowing nothing about philosophy, could come to that conclusion naturally just by putting these facts together and seeing it validated by Aristotle would come to that same conclusion thousands and thousands of years ago. It's really interesting. That's a really interesting phenomenon where you have the law written in our hearts and mm. the positive law, yeah. as you said. But we can't ultimately live the law until God. Co- we cooperate with God's mm-hmm. grace, and then it. Um, we need Christ to mediate that, you know. Yeah. And it's without that, uh, it's just an external. Uh, it's just an external law, and sometimes you know the good man will win out, and other times the evil will. Mm. And <laughs> that's that's the reason why, like when the Avatar like f- definitively wins the day, or when Batman uh, solves Gotham's problems for a while, it's um, there's no ultimate end conclusion mm. or something like that. It's like we need the law written on our hearts, apparently, and then also grace. So everything comes back to with. I think mine definitely, and it seems your thought later. Yeah, grace is important. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, and believing in that, that it actually works, um, that's a huge part. Because if you're if you're despairing that uh, grace can work, then even if you're a Christian, um, you won't actually cooperate with that grace if you don't believe it'll actually do anything. Mm. You know, uh, that grace becomes ineffective, inoperative. You don't cooperate. Okay. It go all goes back to the fall and all goes back to redemption. I mean, yes. these are like, look, so, all right. So somebody's just listened to this two hours um, or hour and a half, whatever it's been. Oh, and right. thinks, so we started at six, right? We started at 640 oh, or sorry, 620 rather. Okay. Um, but someone listens to this and like, well, I just listened to these Catholics dude rant for, you know, a long time about movies and they just, how do they find all these Catholic themes and all this stuff? It's like, well, our narrative of reality is fall and redemption yes. <laughs> and Christ. And, that is reality. Uh, I'll say it. Heard here first in the Kellen Alley show. Uh, <laughs> well, heard here way later than, but, but regardless, um, it's uh, that has that that is the story, right? Yeah. That is the reality. We're That's, not playing escapism. It's and then that plays out 
either in its fulfillment or in its lack thereof in all these movies well, that we're sto- analyzing. No, it's the story of history, man's fall, and then man's redemption in Christ. And that's the story of each of our individual lives of falling and rising and falling yeah. and rising. And, and believing in grace yeah. and incorporating yeah. that into our lives. And, exactly. I think that's know. what G.K. Chesterton says, like going back to movies where it's this constant cycle of, okay, evil, human virtue overcomes it. Okay, and then we have the next evil to go on. G.K. Chesterton says, even if you, the, the one doctrine every man should believe in, like even if you don't believe in grace, salvation, miracles, to the one doctrine that is very self-evident is the doctrine of original sin. Mm. He says, how can you not see that in the world? I think <laughs> that every movie is based upon the doctrine of original sin, ultimately, that there's something corrupt in humanity, something wrong. And like we said, we come to various conclusions of how we can defeat it, right? But at the same time, Christ is the only one who can defeat it in the end, except in these movies. I think this goes back to our first podcast where we said, why is tragedy always like more appealing to us than comedy? I think we came to the conclusion last time is that ultimately we won't be able to fully comprehend comedy until the end times when Christ has remained victorious and we can see the beginning, middle, and end of humanity mm-hmm. and their nature on earth. Whereas mm-hmm. like the tragedies, that's what really sticks with us, man's fall, man's corruption, and not being able to get over that in the end, I think. Mm-hmm. I mean, we, that, and Batman, I think the trilogy is ultimately comedy, I believe, because everything is resolved. Yes. But at the same time, it's a very, as we said, minor comedy. Things get resolved, but you know there's a future of like, okay, you need to f- keep this fight They pass the mantle on. You don't do that if it's right, resolved. Right, exactly. Yeah. So it's not mm-hmm. resolved all the way through. I think, though, that movies would not be effective. I mean, Marvel. if the Marvel Cinematic Universe ended with Endgame, that would be the first time in movie history, I think, you have a definitive, okay, this is the end. There's no track. You know, There's way on. too much money in that brand for G- them G- to stop making G-G-Nuri. money. Or, or yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, but like even in Lord of the Rings, right? You 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 defeated Sauron, but you haven't defeated evil. I think no. even in the books, like there's still evil to be reckoned. Isn't that a theme in Tolkien in general? There's a constant cycle of fall and evil rising back up. Yes, because um, but even when Melkor, like in what was the battle called in Silmarillion? I wish I had a copy of Silmarillion in my hands right now. The War of Wrath, the battle. I think the War of Wrath at the end of the first part of the Silmarillion. I think. Um, is when Melkor, who's the, the Satan figure, yeah. satanic figure, is put into, like, basically put back where he belongs, right? He's put in this prison in, like, Mando. I, I forgot now. Ah, I read it a while ago. But like, he's ultimately defeated. But the after effects of his evil continue on yeah. in Middle Earth. So even though Melkor himself is defeated, he doesn't have any more direct power. The after effects of his evil reign on and Sauron especially yeah so that's the I think that's Tolkien where it's like even Catholic I think that's what ultimately is Catholic that's why Tolkien is Catholic theology right like ultimately like the devil is defeated by Christ right but as Alex was saying earlier you have to cooperate with that grace in order for our own personal fight against sins like Christ did defeat evil definitively but we still have concupiscence and must cooperate with that grace in order to find salvation Mm. Man, boys, <laughs> we have hit. Wow, how all many over, did we not hit? All over the place. Yeah. Yeah. It was great. Uh, yeah, we started on Spider Man. Started on Spider Man, Batman, Inception. Yeah. And oh, it, the Inception part was great. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's. 
Man, part two. <laughs> part two. Oh my god. This this is in in want so, of a part three. Yeah. Oh, so yeah. have you ever watched? I think it's. By Jimmy, the way, I got to wrap it up. Yeah. My battery's about to die. Oh, yeah. So. No, but Jimmy Kimmel's show. He has this running gag that at the end of every show he says, "My apologies to Matt Damon. We ran out of time." The joke being that theoretically Matt Damon was a guest we didn't have. That's like Spider Man three with this podcast. Yes. My apologies to Spider Man three, but we ran out of part time. Three guys, part we got to get to part Ooh. three. Yes. So Francesco. Thank you so much again. Oh, you're for welcome. Being on. Thank you. These are some of my favorite podcasts all time. Awesome. So yes. I'm looking uh, forward to discussing yeah, Spider-Man 3. We still haven't gotten remember there's the mystery theme of what happens to oh, end yeah. with Mary Jean, what that yeah. means. We didn't never got to that yet. Like next time on Dragon Ball Z. Next time. next time on the Kellen and Alex okay. show. So thank you all for uh, yep. listening, it's Francesco. Great. Thanks so much for, uh, for coming welcome. on. For, John, yeah, thank, thank you me. as well. And uh, that's going to wrap it up for us. Uh, be on the lookout for part three sometime in hopefully the near future. And uh, we're going to be back on Monday with Adida, who's going to be oh. on the podcast. Uh, we're still thinking exactly what we want to talk about. Why you should read the troupe. Why you should read the, why you should read the troupe. So thanks so much for listening, guys. And uh, peace out. If there's a Christian religion, then it's Catholicism or nothing. What politics actually is art of people living together orienting one another towards virtue and the person was like dude flirting is the abortion of love this is the most worthy most exciting most adventurous drop and, a uh, nuke on the franciscan bubble the kellen and alex show